Dennis Coleman, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. You're giving the Cambridge MBA guest speakers leadership lecture on lessons from 14 Silicon Valley startups, 1978 to 2011. You're founder of Cementics Corporation, uh, which makes the Norton antivirus software, the fourth largest software company in the world. So the first question, how did you get started? I got started when I was teaching at the University of Hawaii, uh, and I wrote a textbook, and a colleague and I sold the textbook, and in one year we were making half as much money from selling our own book as from the university, and university um, salaries being back then um, what they are now, it just seemed like more fun to go into entrepreneurship. But as I looked ahead, what I saw is that where did I want to be in 20 years? And I did not want to be a professor in 20 years, although it's a very fine and noble profession. And I saw entrepreneurs who had gone out and done successful things, like Ken Olson of, of Digital Equipment Corporation, and that's the sort of person I wanted to be. And, and so that you actually had role models, we would call it, as entrepreneurs who you thought, if they could do it, I can too. Exactly. And through great effort here and spending um, three years in Hawaii, I was able to get the U.S. green card and then go to Silicon Valley where um, it was quite clear <laughs> the tide was coming in and all boats were rising. So tell us a little bit about founding that first company, Symantec. Um, did you write the programs? Did you bump into the right people? Were you in somebody's garage? That's how startups seem to happen in Silicon Valley. I had my own little spelling checker company with the first spelling checker for microcomputers. It was a wonderful little business, but it was a little business, and I sold it. And I encountered a gentleman, Gordon Eubanks, a very determined entrepreneur. Um, and one day he, he showed up at my living room and said, Dennis, we've got to start a company, and I'll write a check for $100,000, and you throw in your technology, and we'll start a company. And that company became Symantec. And I did it because uh, Gordon was one of those uh, role models. But if we read the literature about it, it also says that you didn't wait around to watch it become the fourth largest software company in the world. You got out of Symantec. Now, did you get out of it because it doesn't interest you to run a company? It only interests you to do, if you like, the initial thought, the invention, the program making, uh, the if you like, the ideas behind the success? I'm basically a, a craftsman, and I like to make things, and I like to make things that, that people use and people like. Uh, and Gordon likes to run a corporation. So we had a, um, we had a marriage for five years, um, a little bit rocky at times, but I did the technology, including um, writing a lot of the code. And, and I remember when we moved into our new office space, um, you know, all of the managers took the window offices, and I could have had a nice window office, and I said, I think I'm just going to take this center cubicle. And it worked out well, because then the programmer that was running a consulting business on the side found he couldn't do it when I was, <laughs> when I was listening. So that's your personal story as someone, uh, if you like, who likes the, the pure thought, the innovative thought, the, the programming. Your, it said you write 30,000 lines of codes for your newest kind of venture. But can our MBA students at the Cambridge Judge Business School follow in your footsteps? What does it take? 
Well, I, I think the rules just, just change entirely. I think one thing it takes is you work with partners. And if you're a business student, you find if it's technology, um, you just team up with a technical person. And, it, and it, it takes more than one person to make a company. But the rules have changed. The platforms are there. You don't have to do it. In fact, now, if you're doing a lot of programming, it's probably the wrong thing because you've got programs and visual languages and things, and the programming is just a smaller and smaller part of it. Okay, well, we had the glory days of Silicon Valley and entrepreneurship, the dot-com crash in 2000. You might have said it lasted from 1995 to, to 2000. But you yourself, uh, Dennis Coleman, talk of the glory days of entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley. Why do you think that? Well, I think all of somebody produces a platform and it just opens up opportunity. And, of course, the Intel opened up this whole platform of microprocessors. And then, whether you like them or not, Microsoft really opened up this platform that developers could add to. And that just made an awful lot of people wealthy and successful. And, you know, they complained all the way about the monopolies, but these people made all of this possible. And now we have the Googles and the Facebooks, um, and it just sort of continues. Do you think it can be replicated elsewhere? People often talk about Cambridge as being another Silicon Valley. Um, do you think our MBA students at the Judge Business School, if you, if you like, could, could ever replicate those kind of business successes? Or was it just something that happened in one place at a particular time? Well, I think Silicon Valley is wondering whether it can replicate itself. Um, but when you get a lot of smart, motivated people, it's just amazing what can happen. And I think internationally, um, that's where it's going to be at in the future, in the, in the global village. And so it's those partnerships, those networks, those friendships you uh, make when you're perhaps studying at somewhere uh, like the Cambridge Judge Business School that can lead to those successes in the future. Uh, yes, you know, the model used to be if you could sell it in Massachusetts, you could sell it in New England, you could sell it in the United States and then go find some foreign markets. Um, I think now maybe you've, you find the foreign markets, particularly in the life sciences, where you can get started on a much smaller budget and then get the data and the proof and then go back into the American market because it's just too hard, to, too expensive to start it there. Now, you started your life at MIT. You studied mechanical engineering and management. You went on to do a PhD at Stanford. And I think you've invested in over 20 other companies as a angel investor. So if I was to bring an idea to you, um, what would you judge that idea on? Would you judge me? Would you I judge the idea? Would you judge the fact that I'd fathomed out the extent of the global markets? Well, I tend to invest in products that I really feel there's a strong demand for because that gets me interested in to go and to dig in and to find out what is going on. But I invest in a lot of areas, so I like to invest with somebody who's in the domain. So if it's medical, I need a doctor. If it's some new chip, then I need somebody who's designed chips for computers. Um, and I always co-invest with other people. And, but at the end of the day, it comes down to when every time the idea has been so good, you invest in somebody that you were worried about, it just doesn't seem to work. So it has to be somebody that I like. And that may not be somebody who's just gung-ho, rah-rah. It may be somebody who is just passionate in a quiet, sincere way, who does their homework, who's confident, who knows their stuff, who's researched the market. And so if you've got an entrepreneurial uh, inventor who might 
have a eureka moment. You, you don't look for them because you've actually, you know, the programmer, the engineer, the management consultant in you ha- has actually thought about some models for sizing and monitoring entrepreneurial opportunities. Can you tell us more about these? Well, first of all, products have life cycles. And the life cycle of my first product, the spell checker, that I sold for $295, I really didn't know what I was doing then. Um, but I did know that you couldn't sell these things at 295 for very long, though I did give good discounts. So basically, I sold the business after a year and a half when the thing was still at its top. Um, and then something like Financial Engines, it does this financial management for 401k retirements in the United States. That's got a 30 or 40 year product lifetime, and, and it's just got a lot of growth left. Uh, something like Gator, um, big internet site, it turned out it had a five year, and we didn't know how fast it would fall. Um, and you have to keep an eye on what is the life cycle and be realistic, and it'll tell you when to get out and, and how much money to invest. And the second thing is entrepreneurs got to, do you have a feature, just something to be added to a product? The spell checker was a good example. It was just a feature to be added. Um, at Symantec, I built this combined um, database word processor with a natural language interface. That was a product. It was not a company. It had a life cycle that was... Turned out it was about eight years until um, Microsoft figured out how to how to push us off the map by combining um, spreadsheet, word processor, and database and PowerPoint all in all in one. Um, but Gordon was building a company, and he was building a company that could acquire other companies and head broad distribution. So the entrepreneurs, you got to see what are you building. If it's just a feature, that's fine. You're probably going to get your money out early. But if you think that feature is a company, you're going to find that people like to shop at supermarkets and they can push out. So that's your sizing and monitoring entrepreneurial tool, if you like. But in Britain, our Prime Minister and Coalition Government, David Cameron and Nick Clegg, Conservative and Lib Dem leaders, are talking about us entering a phase of start-up Britain. We're all supposed to become entrepreneurs. Do you honestly believe that people can run businesses if they've come from the public sector, the private sector? Is it suited to everybody to set up a start-up? Well, I don't think it's suited to everybody. And as I mentioned before, you should do it with partners. Um, But it does take people who are going to go out and start things and, and make things happen. And they build the teams on the way. And they get rewards for that. And, and the hard part is when you have your one or two partners and you put in your own money or maybe raise a little money and you've got to get that to the point where you can go out hire strangers. And I think that's where things take off, when you get to the point where you can hire strangers and put together a, a new unit and offer people jobs they take because it's better than the other jobs they have. So I, I applaud this effort, but obviously everybody isn't going to go out and start their own company. Dr. Dennis Coleman, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. I've learned so much. Thank you very much. and It is a pleasure and an honour to be here at this great university. And that is the Cambridge MBA guest speaker podcast.